Hi, Ben. James, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I, I'm, my mind is going a million miles a minute because I'm trying to... It's like riding a bike where the handles like turn the opposite way. <laughs> so I'm trying to to uh, properly fill my role as as responding to to your opening, and it's it's actually way harder than it seems. I know. After a hundred plus episodes of doing this, it's you get into this th- this rhythm, and it's kind of crazy when you try and mix it up how difficult it is to do so. Hey, well, you know, we're we're all about learning and expanding our horizons, so. Yes, indeed we are. And on that note, we should thank our sponsor, MailChimp, who has been around since 2001. The company started as a side project, funded by various web development jobs. Now, they're the world's leading email marketplace platform, and they send more than a billion emails a day. They democratize technology for small businesses, creating innovative products that empower their customers to grow. Uh, our thanks to MailChimp, who are the sponsor of today's episode of Exponent, as they are every episode of Exponent this season. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I always do that, don't I? <laughs> it's funny. I'm actually probably even more in touch with your ticks than you are with mine because I edit it. So there's all these little things that I'm gonna have to I have to keep in mind as long as I'm as long as we're we're. We're somewhat switching roles. Yes, you're going to have to send it to me afterwards to edit, and then and then the role reversal will be complete. <laughs> Sounds good. So part of the reason that we're doing the flip is that I was struck with inspiration this week to write about a relatively broad topic. I would say that this is a this is a, a deep dive into economics and society in general. And the way I think I go into it is by talking starting on incentives, which is something that you write a lot about with Stratechery and that we've talked a lot about on the podcast. And when I arrived in the United States as a grad student back in 2008, the financial crisis had just begun. And as people dug deeper into the explanation of what had caused it, there was this term that kept being thrown around, one of moral hazard. This is something you're familiar with? I am. I am. And like... uh is that that that, no. <laughs> that, that was like the ultimate pass off with <laughs> and what's funny is i i totally do this to you sometimes where i feel like i've been rambling for a while and i'm like i should probably stop now and then uh i've, I've probably put you to sleep by that point and then yeah so now i know how it feels <laughs> i was more like there was an implied pass off it's like you know all about moral hazard don't you ben oh, i do know all about moral hazard so moral hazard in the kind so i will take it moral hazard Particularly in the context of, actually, moral hazard was really interesting in the context of the Great Recession because I think there was two levels of moral hazard that were going on. One was on the sort of individual level where you had your your individual bankers who were incentivized to get returns and big bonuses and whatnot and would take big risks to do so in part because if you had a really great year, you got a big bonus, then the next year you had a bad year, rarely would banks go back and claw back your previous bonuses from Mm. from past years. So your downside was just no bonus, whereas your upside could have been very high. So on an individual level, you had moral hazard. Then on a corporate level, the banks had moral hazard because even if there was the presumption that was true, that if the banks went out of business because they, they took you know all, all the debt went off from underneath them, that they would be bailed out by the federal government. And that's exactly what happened. And, and so you had a situation where they're doing like these collateralized debt obligations where they take all these subprime mortgages, package them together, apply all this math to it saying, oh, well, X percent isn't going to – you know only X percent – Mm. We allowed for a bunch to fail, and you can label it AAA, da da da, without, and there was no understanding of the sort of correlation 
Like mm. what hap- Like if if one set fails, probably a whole bunch is also failing at the same time. It's actually funny. It's very similar to what happened in the last election, where the reason why so huh. many of the models were wrong, and the reason why actually, and I said this before, why Nate Silver, I actually think Nate Silver did the best job predicting this election of all the elections he's predicted. And the reason is he was the only one giving Trump a chance because his point was, yes, there's this quote-unquote blue wall, but if one goes, the reasons why one state will go are going to be reflected in multiple states, which yeah. means if Hillary loses Michigan, she's also going to lose Wisconsin, also going to lose Pennsylvania. So the issue, so it's either going to be all or nothing because the causes are going to be correlated. And I think that was, you know, not to get too deep into the Great Recession, but that's what happened to these CDOs where you had all these subprime mortgages packaged together and it was like, well, if some of them go, it's okay. But without appreciating if, if they all went, they would all go and then the banks would all be underwater. But like I said, it didn't matter because the federal government was going to bail them out anyway. And that's, yeah. the, that's the hazard. That's a fantastic explanation of it because it's a, it's a complicated topic. But the broader point that I guess I'd make is that if you accept that they were incentivized to do something like that, then on some level, they were behaving rationally. And while there was a whole lot of sound and fury being directed at them and to a certain extent still being directed at them for what happened – Um, it's kind of crazy to think that the system was actually encouraging them to do exactly what they did. And that was the point that really got me thinking. It's like when you have a system incentivizing people to act in a a way that uh, is not beneficial for everybody, then is it should you get mad at the people who are acting or should you start to actually get mad at the people who've built the system, who put in place the system such that the incentives were to act in the way they did? And that's what started this whole this whole area of, of interest for me, which is like, isn't it crazy that, that a system got built that effectively resulted in the financial system melting down? Yeah, and I think that's – I don't know the exact – how the phrase moral hazard, wh- why they coined that term. But the mm. way I've certainly always thought about it is that the reason why it's a hazard is because your morals do get sort of twisted, right? Mm. And, and yeah, that's because that's exactly the point is if you follow your incentives, you will do something that is hazardous for the system as a whole. Like that's And that's exactly the case. The – if you if the bankers the bankers were totally rational on an individual level it was rational it was like being a vc right you you want to pursue something where you have an infinite upper end and a 1x downside you know the mm. cuz the upside is so much greater it's balanced in vc because a lot of your investments will fail, right? But right. but in this case, you're sitting in a bank and you pursue these super risky strategies and they work and you get a big bonus. If they don't work, you just don't get a bonus. And so the, the, the it was out of whack, but there was no corresponding uh, number of failures to make up for, for sort of the one upside because it was like on an annual basis. You had this arbitrary time stage, right? If yeah. you were doing a banker over his entire career, and being like, okay, we'll pay you your bonus when you're 60 years old based on your success versus your failures, said banker would be a lot more careful about not having massive downside failures, right? But when right. you limit it to a single year time, well, that, that totally screws up all the incentives. And, and, and so that's on an individual basis. On, on, on a systematic basis, same thing. Like you're under shareholder pressure to, to generate returns. You're competing against not just other banks in the US but banks across the world. And everyone is doing it. And it's like if I don't do it, then the the you know I'm I'm gonna be out of a job because I'm not gonna be providing the same returns as my competitors. And if it screws up, well, 
we're all going to be screwed up, and then the U.S. government is going to have to come in and rescue us anyway. Because, like, what what is it? is the economy going to function without banks? It's crazy. It's it's the parallel between VC and this is so interesting because it just goes to show how it's it's not risk itself isn't the problem. It's just the managing of risk in a uh, productive way versus uh, when you have the system set up incorrectly, like how that risk. Uh, when inappropriately taken advantage of can infect so many different things. And also, I love the way that the, the time horizon element of it too is like, is always another good indicator. It's a red flag when a system is set up incorrectly, when people's behavior, when their short-term behavior, when they're encouraged to behave in the short-term in such a way that when you look at all those moves in the long-term, it makes no sense. Like that is always a red flag that there's poor system design and moral hazard is happening. Right, especially when it's arbitrary, right? Like a year mm-hmm. is is a totally arbitrary time frame. And 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 a, another contrast with VC where yes there is usually like 10 years on a fund, but the, in reality the the time that it takes to actually return the money is, is even longer than that, right? Mm-hmm. And and yeah, and I, again, it's the issue with the risk versus reward is the actor needs to equally feel both. Right, they need to be able. So the the fewer limitations that are on it, the more the actor will both realize the reward and ought to also feel the risk. Uh, uh, you know, on, on the downside. And once you limit either of those in either direction, this goes in both in both places. If you limit risk, you get bad behavior that will blow up the entire system, as we saw. But you can also limit the other way, where if you limit reward. You end up with people not taking any chances and no innovation and nothing happening. You actually see this in both things happening where there's like moral hazard on one side and there's moral like, you know, I don't know what the word for it is. Just like lax, laxacity or lax, I don't know what the word yeah, is. Yeah, well, no, it, it like touches on one of the things we've talked about the past couple of episodes, which is it's really hard that when you create regulation that that stops something from ever being created. It's really hard to see that or measure that. And it doesn't actually surprise me that there's not a term because it's almost like this, this silent thing that never happens because the system is set up wrong. And that's kind of what you're getting at. Right, ex- exactly, exactly. So as I got deeper and deeper into this, I, I, I sought out a way of trying to understand it and looked into, looked into all kinds of places. And I found this research by a guy, a, a famous American economist by the name of William Bommel. And in uh, 1990, he actually published a paper called Entrepreneurship, Productive, Unproductive and Destructive. And I feel that it has pretty powerful explanatory power over what happened back in the 2008 uh, financial crisis, but also more generally what's going on in the economy right now. And basically, Bommel makes the case that rather than entrepreneurship, being this thing that magically waxes and wanes uh, almost of its own accord or because of deeper cultural reasons. He, he recognizes that actually entrepreneurs are all around us. They are people that are, who are in, he, he creates this definition, who are ingenious and creative in finding ways that add to their own wealth, power, and prestige. And one of the things I like about this definition is it changes, like the typical way that Silicon Valley, you think of an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley is like someone who creates a startup. But using Baumol's, um definition, you begin to realize that business people just in general are entrepreneurs. And uh, you, you, the, the, the bankers, they are entrepreneurs, like they fit this definition. Right. So 
you're you're so what you're saying is we always think of entrepreneurs as being like someone starting like Mark Zuckerberg is an entrepreneur, mm. right? But there, there's a a then there's small entrepreneurs which which we've both talked about are underappreciated, under talked about, you know, small yes. businesses, whatever they might be. But even in jobs, and you just said bankers can be entrepreneurial. So your point is this idea that like figuring out these interesting interesting like CDOs is is entrepreneurial activity. Like you're being creative and innovative in the pursuit of of maximizing your own personal return and wealth. Is that a fair characterization? Totally. All the activity, all the people participating to to the, 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 to into what would normally be considered economic activity, that's people being entrepreneurial. And so people wake up every day and they have a they have a set of resources at their disposal. It might be their labor, it might be capital and labor and so on, and they think about how to deploy those resources in in the way that's going to get them the greatest returns. And when you view the world in that way, you realize that entrepreneurship is all around us. Yeah, I mean, almost you could also say that entrepreneurship is sort of like the – this is why, if you want to get super grand about it, why entrepreneurship is the answer to sort of AI and artificial intelligence because it's almost like entrepreneurship is the discovery of new ways of doing things mm. as opposed to just doing the same rote thing over and over again. Right. That's that's exactly right. It's this, it's this notion – it's the human uh, creativity and – ingenuity to go and do new things, but with a view to getting a typically a financial return. And so Bommel goes on to basically say that there are three types of entrepreneurship that uh, that occur as a result of this. And the first one is productive entrepreneurship, which is which is the one that that we referenced earlier, which is uh, like the Zuckerbergs of the world or, or the small businesses, like whatever it is when there's this net benefit to society. But it's the typical image of the entrepreneur. Well, also is someone just internal to a company that figures out a new way to do something, right? And like totally. and they get a bonus for it or, or whatever or adulation from their peers or their boss or whatever it might be uh, because they did something more efficiently or whatever it might be. Exactly. And at the other end of the scale, you have what he terms destructive entrepreneurship. Now, it's uh, typically you might not think about uh, folks that come under the classification of destructive entrepreneurship as entrepreneurs, but they absolutely are. I watched the recent Netflix series. Um, oh, what's the Escobar? Um, Narcos? Narcos, exactly. Uh, and you get a sense of just how crazy from a supply chain management and operations perspective some of these drug operations are like these people are entrepreneurial the the problem is that, i mean they fit the definition they are using their resources to generate wealth and prestige the problem is the way that they are channeling their energies and the energies of those around them aren't in ways that are productive to society it's in ways that are destructive to society or there's the are we the bankers again, right? Who are created these crazy contraptions that then brought down the entire economy, right? But here's the thing: they actually fit in this category that Bommel has um, that uh, created in between called un unproductive <laughs> unproductive entrepreneurship. Now, this isn't the illegal kind, which is the destructive the destructive one that we just talked about, but nor is it the productive kind that we started with first. This is when you start to think about lobbying or when you start to think about tax avoidance or regulatory capture. This isn't society benefiting, but these people aren't breaking the rules as well. Now, this is actually 
exactly what I would, the bankers are exactly what I would point to as examples of people that fit in this category. And so to, to kind of summarize, like productive entrepreneurs, like they're focused on growing the pie, uh, unproductive entrepreneurs, they're really thinking more about dividing the pie. It's like, how can I make sure I get more of it? And then if you, if you, I was a little bit cheeky in trying to describe destructive entrepreneurs, but I thought about them as people who were trying to steal the pie. So you have no, you have no time for the bankers. What's their defense that they are injecting liquidity into the economy and financing the, the productive entrepreneurs and that makes them productive entrepreneurs as well? Oh, I think that is exactly what um, that's exactly what bankers do when they're doing uh, when they're operating as banks are meant to operate. Like I think we need banks. Like this idea that we don't need finance or we don't need banks. Anyone who's tried to anyone who's spent half a second around Silicon Valley knows that financing is the lifeblood of all the companies around here. And part of the reason that there is such a flourishing ecosystem in the Valley and all these other parts of the world is ready access to capital. That is that is banking acting in, an, in a productive way. But when you start to see bankers play with the rules of the game in order to get ahead in ways that aren't benefiting people in general, that's when they're starting to slip into unproductive entrepreneurship. And that's what I'm objecting. To. I agree with you. I was just kind of pushing you to to make that distinction. And it's a point that we've talked about is this sort of, you know, legalistically okay versus like morally okay, which is I think a bit of another way of kind of getting at this same point where there's ways where you would kind of like squeeze the rules to or find loopholes or whatnot. And that's mm. not it's it's not bad per se. I mean it's not I don't think that it's 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 necessarily a you know a, a morally bad thing. It's also not clear that, you know, it's really doing anything beyond making yourself sort of personally wealthy. Like are, is there any systematic effect on the economy as a whole? I mean ideally with entrepreneurship, like say even the internal entrepreneurship where you're inside a company and you're figuring out a new way to do something more efficiently, well, mm. that is broadly beneficial because now said company is going to use less resources to accomplish the same thing, which means there are more resources available to that company or to their shareholders, whoever it might be, to do other things. Which And so mm. that's how you actually do increase the pie, to your point. Whereas figuring out a way to siphon some money in what, into one pocket instead of another, not illegal per se, but is that actually – you know, increasing the efficacy of the economy. I mean, maybe, maybe occasionally the money is now going to more productive uses than it would otherwise, but it's getting to be probably a bit, a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's kind of a gray line where this hits because I mean you mentioned exploiting loopholes. Is it okay? Well, it kind of depends, right? Like we one of our favorite companies to talk about on on Exponent is Uber, and when you when you think about uh, when you think about Uber, like you could make a case that because of the way that they're breaking the rules, maybe this is unproductive entrepreneurship. But I would step back and say, actually, you look at what would happen if you revolutionize the way that human beings are transported and the allocation of resources to transportation. Like if instead of everybody needing to own a car to get around, you could have one centralized organization deploying those resources much more efficiently and being able to pick people up and then you don't need parking and all those other things. Like actually, I would make the case that is a classic example of productive entrepreneurship that the rules are trying to stifle. 
Yeah. <laughs> You're the one that went to Uber, not me. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Well, yeah, and that's why there's so much, and that's why it's so difficult to parse. So I think it's a, it's a very fair point. And like, while we get into the cultural questions of if you push the rules in one area, and then does that, is it possible to build a culture that doesn't push them in, in other areas where, the, where they're mm. much more appropriate? Um, but that is definitely another podcast, which we've already had, I think, on, on multiple occasions. Yeah. Totally. But it it does lead quite nicely into the question that comes out of Bommel's work, which is like, what determines which kind of entrepreneurship you get? Like whether you get the productive, the unproductive or the destructive. And he, this is the insight that I think is so fascinating about his work, which is he terms it the rules of the game. But basically, it is like the rules that entrepreneurs find themselves operating in that determine whether you get this, this good entrepreneurship, this kind of bad entrepreneurship or this really bad entrepreneurship. And if you, if you think about someone who wakes up typically in Manhattan and thinks about deploying their resources and you compare that to someone waking up in a war-torn area where uh, I mean wherever like somewhere where there's I I mean I I have this tendency to like pick on Mogadishu because of I I had a friend who spent some time there and told me about what it was like and how you get those pirates off the Somali coast like the, the distinction between those like that's still they're both human beings like they're both in these environments but they wake up and they have these resources that they choose to deploy and the rules of the game when you're operating in manhattan are such that you're going to use those resources to create something productive versus in, in another area you can wake up and be encouraged to do something that's not productive at all just by by virtue of the rules of the game that you're existing in that's why the United States is in the position it is in historically is because it has built a culture over a period of time that really has done a phenomenal job of channeling productive entrepreneurship. Like you look at so many of the innovations that have emerged out of the, the 20th century, how many of those emerged in the United States? And and a, the reason for that is that the rules of the game that were set up here was such that people were encouraged and rewarded for pursuing this type of entrepreneurship more so than in any other part of the world. It, well, it goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning about moral hazard cuts uh, uh, both it's not the the term is generally used to talk about the out the outsized pursuit of kind of upside because you feel like your downside is capped or limited by some sort of external force and so you take undue risk right mm. but i think what you're driving at is the is the opposite which is if your upside is capped then where do you push your sort of your your efforts towards you know status or or gain wealth or whatever it might be they will go in in sort of very very different directions and you know whether that be you know something that is you know, quite literally stealing to desert the, the 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 reference you just made or whether it be focused on you know corruption or bribery which you see in different places or whether it be yeah pursuing like the upside and this is always you know it drives people up the wall but this is what <laughs> at a holistic level when you say when when like people argue against high tax rates for example right it's that yes uh, i mean i'll I, I will give a i will give a I, I will give a personal example i mean i think which i think is justified by the fact i've generally been in favor of you know uh, higher tax rates to 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 lead to a stronger social net but for example i'm not doing any speaking anymore 
And yep. one of the reasons I'm doing any speaking is because honestly, knowing that 38% of it's gonna be taken away, it's not worth it. You know, I, I can get a pretty healthy rate for my time, but when I actually think about the cost and the cost of my time, I'm just not gonna do it. It's not it's not really worth the trouble. If my tax rate was twenty percent, like maybe I would do some more. Now is Ben speaking really productive and helpful for the economy? I mean, maybe we can go back and forth about how valuable that is. <laughs> but I will tell you, the tax rate has a direct impact on whether or not I do speaking engagements. Totally. I, I, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not begging for lower taxes. I'm just acknowledging that there is a. It matters what I decide to do based on you know how much money I, I keep from it. Oh, totally. And here's the thing I would say is that human beings are very finely attuned to making exactly this kind of calculus. Like the people are very good at looking around and seeing, oh, who else is getting ahead? How can I best get ahead? Like we are, a lot of people are very wired up to be very attuned to doing that. And so you want to be very, very thoughtful about setting up the rules of the game because you're, of course, like that's your decision-making process. Process, but everybody around you in a in a in a city or a, in a country or a society um, are making ex- exactly those kinds of assessments on a on a regular basis, and you start setting the rules of the game. It will it will dramatically alter the type of entrepreneurship that you start to get. And I guess this is this this is where it starts to tie back into. Uh, the beginning of where where I started with this, uh, focusing on the financial crisis and uh, reflecting on on the United States and its position in the world. Yeah, and again, I, I, just to re- reiterate, um, like I'm not complaining about my taxes. You know, I, I think the point, though, just just to make a sort of, if I can make a sort of broader point, that is what I make again and again. But honestly, mm. based on what I see on Twitter, it can never be made enough. Is that there really is there's there's no extreme position that is right about any of this sort of thing. It, it, it is not right to say that taxes should be cut completely, right? That that's that's not uh, it's a refusal to acknowledge the realities of sort of the society we get we we live in, which we can get to in a moment. I hope we do because I have a sort of mm. rant about capitalism and anti-capitalism all sort of stuff in me that I'd like to get mm. out. But on the flip side, it's also you can't just say you can't pretend that taxes don't have an impact. Like again, you can argue that taxes ought to be higher or that higher income payers ought to pay more, and that's and that's totally fine, but you can't pretend that that doesn't have any impact on people's behavior. And what's so frustrating, and I get frustrated I'm continually frustrated. I live in a state of frustration, James. What's so frustrating is people refusing to acknowledge the trade-offs of their position. And honestly, I don't have very much time to hear you argue when you won't even acknowledge the downsides of what you're proposing. It doesn't mean you're wrong, right? That doesn't mean any position is right or wrong. There are no positions that are 100% correct or 100% incorrect, particularly when it comes to things like this in economics and Mm. personal behavior, right? Everything we're doing is about sort of trying to strike this balance where you're pulling on all these competing priorities and incentives that all work against each other and work in opposite directions. And it's trying to find the balance. And anyone who comes at you saying that there is an absolute position that is right or wrong, it isn't worth listening to. Sorry. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I've been wanting to rant about that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. 
So to tie this back to where we started um, around 2008 and the financial crisis, but also acknowledging that the United States is in the position that, it, that it's in. And, and we talked about how its ability to channel productive entrepreneurship is part of the reason it's in the position that it's in. One of the questions that it caused me to start to ask is, is the US starting to lose the ability to do this? Is there something that has changed in, in recent history that's resulting in the, the United States getting more of this kind of bad, bad entrepreneurship, probably less of the destructive, outright destructive kind, but more of this unproductive kind where you're seeing companies go about finding ways of generating profit that aren't necessarily beneficial to society. And the 2008 financial crisis is one example of that. And I began to and go I, through- Which I would the, argue veers towards destructive entrepreneurship. Yeah, which, which, is, uh, which is, you're absolutely right. But regardless, like this notion that whereas once it was excellent at channeling people into doing things that were- beneficial to society in general, and it seems to be declining. And I went looking for for measures of this. And it, it, I mean, at face value, it, like the American economy seems to be doing great. Like the S&P 500 is at all-time highs, like corporate profits are at all-time highs. But you start to dig a little bit deeper. And there was an Economist article that did a fantastic job of this, and we should link to it in the show notes, that started to show all these worrying trends that when you look deeper, there's actually there's actually some really bad stuff going on that, that is enabling profits to be high. So uh, one example is if you look at uh, the top four firms in a range of industries inside the United States and their share of profits, The Economist did some analysis looking at that in 1997 and then 2012 and showed that in basically every industry inside the United States, the top four firms average share of total revenue has dramatically increased. And then there are other there were other very worrying signs like the firm entry rate this is being tracked by the US census it has been declining pretty consistently since the census started tracking this which was back in 1978 and at the same time the exit rate has started to increase and recently actually surpassed the entry rate which suggests that the the rate at which businesses are exiting the market in the United States has actually surpassed the rate that businesses are being created. Yeah, I think this is a this is a massive problem. And it's something that that people will always sort of mention to me whenever I talk about a future of like entrepreneurship and small businesses and that sort of thing. It's like, well, actually the number of businesses in the US are are decreasing and have been decreasing, you know, pretty rapidly for quite a while. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I this is something I th- I think is one of the biggest problems facing the US is an a an ever decreasing lack of competition. In mm. sort of industry after industry, and that includes technology. Frankly, I mean, we we have this situation where everyone thinks about you know tech being oh so so dynamic and firms rising and firms falling. The reality is is that you know as we Facebook rules us all when it comes to social. You know, Google mm. is dominant, Apple is is, is dominant, Microsoft is, is still dominant. You know, and uh, what's the other Amazon? Amazon is beyond dominant. Amazon's mm. you know Amazon's position. And is is overwhelming in industry after industry that it enters, and they're eating not just other tech companies; they're eating like 
entire rest rest of industry. And I mean, that's how you square these two things, like what you touched on just then, this lack of competition. It's it's the the profitability and on the surface, looking at the macro the macro trends, the the American economy looks looks like it's performing great guns and then you start to dig deeper and these worrying trends start to emerge and it's it's this it's this unproductive entrepreneurship that i think is a fantastic explanation for for how these two things are happening this is this is an example of how yeah you're getting record profitability yes the s&p 500 is is at record highs but the way in which companies are achieving this is is through main mechanisms that aren't necessarily productive to uh, to society, like the massive takeovers, uh, mergers, acquisitions, lobbying spend, which doubled in the period from 1997 to 2012. Like all these things that aren't productive, like the firms are going in and trying to change the rules of the game in order to get further ahead. Yeah. Th- and th- this touches on, I think, two two really important points. So one is that We've talked several times about this idea of looking at the top level, the uh, sort of the, the the top level number versus getting down into the details, and mm. this is a classic example of that. Where if you look at the economy as a whole, it's it's doing well, and when you look at GDP, right? But when you realize that that is concentrated in ever smaller number of companies, the implication is that there's a lot of other companies that aren't doing well. That are that are doing worse, right? And this also matters from a sort of geographic perspective, where the vast majority of economic growth is being generated by a very small sort of geographic area and small number, you know, where, where there's massive growth, huge growth, and then the whole rest of the country is actually is contracting, right? And again, if you look at the at the top level number, you will miss sort of what's going on you know, uh, uh, underneath the surface. Yeah, averages, uh, it's one of those things that you learn with a little bit of experience to double click on. Averages can hide a multitude of interesting things. And in this case, it's it's another example of it happening where uh, on average, it looks like things are great, but the, the detailed picture, uh, it's much more fractured and you're getting, you're seeing areas of where things are going really, really well. And you're seeing areas where things are going really, really badly. You miss the whole picture. And if you think about it, about all the sort of things that we've talked about, like, like in the last couple of weeks, where you're having a, a massively increased return to capital, right? Which is really the story of technology, because by spending upfront, by building these sort of systems, whether they, they be you know software programs or AI or whatever it might be, you're spending money upfront, and then you're realizing tons and tons of return over time because your marginal costs are very low, right? Whereas humans are very high marginal costs; you have to pay them labor to get a job accomplished. It follows that you can generate a huge amount of growth in the aggregate by heavy investments in technology, but that return is going to go to a very small number of of people, a very small geographic area. And that's exactly what we see happening. And meanwhile, you're going to have labor decreasing its importance as a part of the economy. It follows that the geographic returns are going to be restricted, that the sort of the mean and the median are going to diverge. And I've, and that and that's always been this sort of weird puzzle about the like how why are people complaining about the economy? GDP is doing great, you know all these sorts of things. Well, once you click down, just because it's going well for the United States does not mean it's necessarily going well for you know Ohio or Michigan or or whatever it might be. 
So uh, absolutely. Now it's it's interesting. Like so much of what we've focused on here has been a discussion around economics, and it would be tempting to think that because this seems to be an economic problem, that there must be some kind of economic solution to it. But it was actually another economist, ironically enough, uh, who I had the opportunity to recently hear talk. His name's David Moss, who actually. Um, who actually spoke. And as I was listening to him, it was like, ah, this makes so much sense. And he, Moss actually makes the case that the, the problem isn't that we have not enough economics. The problem is that we have too much. And one of the little breadcrumbs that you kind of, uh, that, that leads you to this conclusion is that the, the lobbying spend, it, it, something's going wrong here in terms of like the rules of the game. And, and Moss is basically making the case. So he went back uh, over the past couple of hundred years inside the United States, looking to see whether right now our political system was is actually different to how it's been in the past, like the amount of fighting that's happening inside of politics. It seems quite extreme, but he went back and he looked and he's like, look, this kind of uh, policy debate, this this kind of very heated, uh, these arguments, this is nothing new for America. And on that front, things seem to be going quite well. What's concerning, what Moss found concerning was sometime starting around the 1930s, around the Great Depression and kind of culminating at the end of World War II, the nature of the policy debates started to change. And whereas once they were very much focused on how is this going to impact democracy, that was the thing that policymakers were most concerned about. Sometime during that period from the 1930s through to the end of the 1940s, that actually started to shift and it started to become much more a question of is this economically the right thing to do? And and Moss gives an example in the he gives many examples actually, but there's one that I particularly like about the regulation of broadcast industries, which is something that we've focused on. And he talks about how in the 1920s with the the regulation of their very first broadcast radio, um, that Congress was absolutely terrified of if someone got a lock on the distribution of radio inside any one region, then they would have such an impact on the political uh, discourse in that region. But you fast forward to the 1960s and the same argument, the same arguments that were happening around television, that the discourse had completely changed inside of Congress. No longer was it, what's the impact going to be on society? society on democracy it was all focused about economics and economic efficiency and not to not to say that these are bad things they are good things but the concern is that something really important was lost in this transition yeah it's interesting i, I you you kind of focused on this on this democracy i would actually make it a, even more abstract to be mm competition like I, I, what is missing is competition and you know i i i was probably too active this week on twitter for my own good but one of the one of the things i got into was you know was people blaming like people there's this thing to, to blame like there's this phrase late stage capitalism and it's blamed for like all the ills of our economy mm. and which i find completely irritating and absurd what is it i haven't i haven't heard of it before well as far as i can tell late stage capitalism is actually corporatism is what i would call it Uh, or or crony capitalism this idea where like corporations are always right and what they want is is effective and frankly this is a phenomenal sort of snow job by sort of corporate titans like corporate executives don't like 
capitalism. Because what is actual capitalism? Capitalism is not just the private ownership of the means of production. It's the private mm. ownership of the means of production that are distributed to the market via competition. Mm. And that competition is a critical, critical factor because – and this is sort of where the paradox comes in. What, it, what makes capitalism work is failure. You have to have a state where if a company screws up or if people mess up, they, the company goes out of business or the people lose their job. And that sounds harsh, but – and this is where the balance sort of comes in. The payoff is you get people you, – you, you have to have the full realization of the moral calculus, both the risk and the reward. Once you limit either of those, if you limit the reward – you get people pursuing entrepreneurship in in other areas or you or just not doing anything and being lazy if you limit mm. risk you get people doing reckless things or or not or doing bad things right that are because they don't have to worry about competition coming around and knocking them off you have to have both now again it's not an absolute is it a bad thing people lose their jobs yes is there a need for a social safety net yes and this is why i'm not an absolutist in either direction but i am sick and tired of people calling everything that corporations want capitalism because to me it's the exact opposite. You have all these companies wanting to combine, wanting to consolidate. Why? Because they want to eliminate competition. I think it's a fantastic point. That notion of failure is exactly what this is driving at. And I, I think we, we talked a little bit about the the effects of lobbying earlier and how porous the divide has kind of become between business, which is the entrepreneurship, and government or regulators, which are the folks that are setting the rules of the game. And it is, it's the the folks who are being entrepreneurial is, uh, are instead of trying to fight and win uh, in the market where there is this competition, where there is going to be failure, where failure is a possibility, they're trying to change the rules of the game such that they can't fail. And it's a fantastic way to generate profits, right? Like if you if you eliminate your competition by merging with them, yeah, great. Like we, we, we're not competing, but that's resulting in a transfer of wealth from the society and the consumer to the, 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 the businesses, the entrepreneurs who are doing this. And the reason that it's happening is because the policymakers are allowing them because the businesses are coming in and saying, hey, like here's, here's a whole bunch of money to let us go do well, uh, one explanation of it anyway. Here's a whole bunch of money to go let us do these things. And you, you don't hear from the organizations, to, to the earlier point, you don't hear from the organizations that aren't created as a result because they can't, they can't get a foothold in this environment where all the rules of the game are stacked in favor of these organizations that are already in existence, the incumbents, such that they can't they can't be they can't be tackled they can't they can't fail right exactly because competing is really 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 hard no business wants to be in a state where they want to compete they want to get to a monopoly state what now there are ways to get to a monopoly state that I think are legitimate and some that aren't like if you if you win by building a sustainable differentiation like say for example apple has a sustainable user experience differentiation i would argue that is mm. great that's legitimate and it accrues to the customer and it accrues to apple's bottom line that's great. Totally. If you build a sustainable cost basis, cost advantage, where you can consistently outcompete your customers or outcompete your competition because you have you have a stronger cost structure, that's legitimate. And 
no surprise, it accrues to the customer, right? And Amazon's probably a good example of this, or Samsung we talked about with the sort of production of like memory chips, right? Having cheaper memory mm. chips is great for everyone, and Samsung has a dominant position in the space. That, that, that's great stuff. But when your advantage is based on, I think that the two problem areas are, and it's kind of funny because they're both about regulation but in opposite directions. One mm. is where you have a sort of, a fixed cost moat. And this is the classic example of this would be like telecoms and like the cable companies. It's the cost of actually laying cable to every house is so extravagantly expensive that anyone who wants to come along and do it, the cable companies can just lower their their prices to drive them out of business and then raise them back up because their marginal costs are tiny. The fixed costs are huge. And this is where the kind of weird rub with tech comes in, right? Because this is the tech game where your upfront cost becomes so huge that you can lower your costs massively because your marginal costs are tiny, drive competition mm. out, and then raise them back up. And this is where Amazon is kind of on the line when it comes to this sort of, this sort of stuff. So when you have this sort of fixed cost monopoly basis where you need regulation, you need antitrust to break those things up, John Sherman was one of the greatest capitalists who ever lived because he's the, you know writing the Sherman Antitrust Act yes. and breaking up those corporations. He was the capitalist here. Were, were, were Carnegie and Rockefeller capitalists? Yes, they were, but this is an example where you have to have the balance. Anything taken to the extreme loses its nature and becomes something else. When, yes, were they capitalists? Absolutely. When they took it to an extreme and became where they were limiting competition, they changed from being capitalists to being corporatists. And no, I'm not playing games with definitions. That's what happens. Anything taken to its extreme changes its very nature. Like there is a line between democracy and mob rule, right? There is a line between having a republic and having a, a dictatorship. Anything taken to a certain point crosses the line. Sorry, so I, I ranted. The other bad situation is regulatory capture. In this case, you have regulation that enables that that enables a company to achieve a dominant position such that there can't be entrance. And those are the sort of two bad areas uh, of – but those are easier. Both of those are easier places to be. If you are a fixed-cost monopolist, there's really no way to screw it up, right? It's it, If you're Comcast, it's really hard to screw it up. They're all messing around trying to make more money because they're secure that their current revenue streams are perfectly fine and will be for a very long time, right? Mm -hmm. If you have the government on your side, that's a great place to be. And what's so what's, what's extra great about having the government on your side is you get to put a nice veneer over it. Oh, it's all about customer safety. It's all about people, people keeping people safe. It's all about, oh, you know, and you can paint all these horror stories about the big bad market and these new competitors coming in, and you never have to account for all the stuff that doesn't happen because there is no competition. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, that was a like long it, rant. It, it, yeah, but it uh, it was a really good one. And that that last point, you never have to account for it, is spot on. But here's the thing. If, if things being taken to extreme are bad, I think one of the things to recognize here is that the incentives for entrepreneurs, in uh, if they didn't have the, the rules of the game, like the incentives for them are to take it to the extreme. They will make as much money as they possibly can the easiest way they possibly can. And what stops them crossing the line from productive to unproductive entrepreneurship are the regulators. And the problem is the porousness of that has increased to such an 
extent that it's just it's possible now for uh, a Verizon or who, name your favorite uh, company that's that's undertaking regulatory capture to go to the regulators and get them in their pockets. And the the irony is, if you look at the incentives from the perspective of the regulators, it's I, I mean, here's the thing: I I fundamentally believe that the people who are working both on Capitol Hill and in these organizations, they're good people. Like they they want to do the right thing. They want to uh, they want to make profits, and there should be. In, in a properly functioning system, there's nothing wrong with that. And on the same side, the the policymakers, the people in Congress, they want to make a difference for their country. But there are these incentives, right? And on one hand, you have business, these entrepreneurs who are trying to make profit and they will do so the easiest way possible. And you have the policymakers who want to get a reelected so they can keep doing their job. Uh, the problem is the line between the two has started to blur such that okay i'm a policy i'm a policymaker i need money to get reelected What's wrong with taking money from these titans of industry? They help me get reelected. I'm doing stuff that by all accounts looks to be helping the economy. Like their profits are going up, uh, uh, you know, like these companies are doing really well. Like this is great regulation. I'm doing my job. And like that's the thing that I think is so interesting here that somehow the the nature of the system that is that the, the both players are being incentivized to send the system in the wrong direction. Well, I think if you back up and look at it too, I mean, the, the post-war sort of era, this last sort of 50 to 70 years has been such so great for the U.S. in, in so many respects. And I, I would argue great for the world. You know, the, the, mm. the number of people who lift out of poverty in the last 30 years alone is is just absolutely amazing and, and staggering. There's been so much progress made that we've sort of had the luxury on a political level. You sort of think about like sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs applied to politics. Like we've had the luxury of spending the last 30 years fighting a cultural war in the U.S., for example, right? Whether that be about things like same-sex marriage or or abortion or you know prayer in schools or like you pick your pick your topic du jour from either side of the aisle in whatever motivates. You know, b- b- both sides. Not, I'm not saying that stuff isn't important. Obviously, it's hugely important, and I think tremendous gains have been made, and it's a wonderful thing. But it's also a debate that is easier to have when everyone feels comfortable economically that they can put food on the table, mm-hmm. right? And what is so interesting, and so I think in some respects, part of the reason why you just talked about, oh, I didn't need money to get reelected because my constituents don't really care about this. Well, your constituents don't care about this if they are feel safe and comfortable and food's on the table. They can afford to care about the social issues. And this, I think, gets at some of the sort of debate we've had that's been going on about this election, what's driving this sort of behavior on on either side and there's a natural inclination to point to social issues and i think something that we both tend to tend to suspect is it's not that the social issues aren't motivating factors it's where do they fall in the sort of calculus right if you mm-hmm. do feel economic pain then your economic pain is becoming a motivator and you are susceptible to people using social issues in an economic context, yeah. right? Yes. What's interesting is the social issues that came up with this election that outraged so many people, in my opinion, appropriately so, like some of the folks on immigrants, for example, is that the focus on immigrants was not about immigrants in a social context, like they're not speaking English. It was immigrants in an economic context. They're taking mm-hmm. your job. And to me, it speaks to 
a shift in back into economics being the driving force of politics. Again, not to say this whole stuff doesn't matter. It matters hugely. But I think it's something that a lot of people who are in areas that are doing very well, that don't feel any economic pain whatsoever, can't even have trouble even acknowledging that economic factors might play a role in bad sort of social outcomes. Again, I'm not defending anyone, anyone's vote, any candidate, any behavior at all. I just think it's it's doing oneself a disservice to presume that economic factors don't play any role in anything at all because they do. Yeah, the the relationship to the hierarchy of needs is a really good way of putting it. And as you move for like as things become more secure, you start to focus on a different set of issues. But you're right, and we have the social issues that have come up this time round have been couched almost entirely in from an economic perspective. It's these people are coming here and stealing American jobs, or this country overseas is taking American jobs. Like that's the way it's being framed. I agree with you. I don't think it's necessarily the social issues per se, but the the way it's in, in relationship to the economy that they're being painted is like touching on a on a raw nerve. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I mean, I, I think the other mistake that's made is we might just fall into it is ca- painting everyone with the same brush, right? Yeah. The, I mean, there are there some people that are motivated by quote unquote bad social motivations. Absolutely, and I am by no means defending any of them or anything, but it's kind of at the margins, right? Why is it the case that the Midwest in particular shifted dramatically in eight years? Like there, there's this map that were passed around, I'll put a link to in the show notes, that showed the shift in vote. And there's this massive red swath in the Midwest. Like the Midwest is exactly where the shift happened. And you saw it in the Electoral College, right? Where you saw all these states that went for Democrats previously shifting the other side. Well, I mean, what was it? Was it racism? I mean, it, it, it's the, the story you have to tell where they voted for Obama and then now didn't vote for Clinton, yeah. for Clinton because of racism. I mean, I get the that this issue has been inflamed and it's been pushed to the forefront and that may have shifted some attitudes. Like, I'm not denying that there was a role, and certainly the sort of privilege of not caring about the impact on minorities or immigrants or whatever of electing you know one can or the other. That certainly is sort of a a it's not overt racism per se but not caring is certainly problematic in of itself and i absolutely acknowledge that but <laughs> but there's there's clearly something else going on here right and if again if if you just think about it systematically and theoretically just back up and think about what is the nature what is the fundamental change driving everything what is driving the US economy it's technology what is the nature of technology it's the shift from labor to capital what are the implications of that it's increased inequality it's increased centralization of wealth in discrete geographic areas and it's the devaluing of labor both in terms of wages and general jobs like and, and what happens when that happens probably labor gets upset and votes for something extreme to shake the system up like there is a there is a story here that makes sense from the data, that makes sense from the theory, that makes sense from the economics, and a lot of people just don't want to just don't want to accept it. The thing that the thing that's crazy about it though is that if you if it was managed properly, there would be the the gains have been such that there is 
so much to go around. Like if it was managed properly, people wouldn't necessarily be feeling this pain. Like they're at the growth, the levels of like, again, you look at the top level growth, GDP is going up so much. And so it, it's, it's what's causing it to be managed in this way that results in in the outcome that we've got. And I think, so Moss had one explanation, which was people had been effectively focusing too much on economics at the expense of democracy. And I also like your, your explanation as well, which is rather than, uh, rather than focusing on competition, Pete, the, the policymakers had been too beholden to big corporate interests and effectively have prioritized profit over competition. Like how do we economically increase profit rather rather than focus on creating conditions for competition to bubble up. I think a really po- a point that you you made, it might have been somewhat implicit as opposed to explicit though, is there's it's very easy to arrive at a local maxima where mm-hmm. where if you pursue profit and your your goal is maximizing profits, and you, you, you made this point tying it to disruption, right? You will end up in a very profitable place. The problem is that is that is that the ultimate prof- place of profitability is that the best place to be in the long run it's not and you but you end up on this hill and because you're incapable of going into the valley for whatever reason you you can't go to the bigger hill next door be, be, because yep. you're so fo- and, and, and Jeff Bezos in his sort of his letter to shareholders this week which is always worth a read and this one was as, as they all are but he talked about the danger of managing by proxy and I think this is a, a good point where corporate profits are a proxy for a healthy economy because mm-hmm. a healthy economy it, it, it is always a question how do you define how do you define economic growth is it number of jobs number, the employment rate is it GDP whatever whatever it might be and your definition will depend on your time frame if you have a narrow time frame. Narrow timeframes and a focus on profits kind of go hand in hand because they're mm-hmm. they're discrete, definable events. But if you're thinking about continual growth, overall growth in a continually expanding economy, you come to appreciate that there has to be a means and a frequent turnover of short-term giants, right? You need big companies to die so that bigger companies can come along in the future. And to focus on a local maximum, to focus on profits, is to deny yourself the opportunity to go to a higher hill that's down the road. Yes, totally. That's that's exactly the point that I was I was driving sorry, at. Sorry, sorry, I stole is, it. No, 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 no. It's always the, like, it's more important that it comes out as opposed to who makes it. Like, this notion that uh, you you have uh, objective functions or dependent and independent variables, and it is so easy to fall into the trap of 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 focusing on the wrong one. Like, yes, you want profits to go up, but the way to get and I think this is the the big insight from disruption. Like the 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 if you focus solely on profits, you end up putting your ability to make profits in the long run at risk. Yes, you will get there in the short run, but you will leave yourself open to. You will leave yourself exposed to someone else coming along and taking them all for you because that focus on profits leads you to behave in a certain way that does not maximize them over the long run. And it requires you to focus on something else in order to get there. And Moss made the case it's like you need to focus on democracy rather than economics or whether it's the focus on competition rather than profits. 
disruption is 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 I think amazing in its sort of descriptive power in describing mm-hmm. why great companies fail. Where I th- where and I know we're going to disagree on this, <laughs> but mm-hmm. where I think mm-hmm. the entire sort of discipline of disruption has gone wrong is in using it as a prescriptive explanation for companies and how they ought to behave. Whereas uh, is in that a company ought to seek to avoid disruption. And I think actually if disruption is prescriptive, it ought to be prescriptive for the government and ought to be prescriptive for regulators in that regulators and the government ought to be focused on encouraging disruption, that disruption ought to be something that can happen because it is a way to grow the pie, to expand the number of customers that are served, that bring new solutions to market. And you have this sort of weird situation where too much of government, to your point, is focused on preserving and helping the incumbents and keeping them in uh-huh. power. And you have all this consulting, disruptive consulting world trying to tell the incumbents to disrupt themselves. And the whole problem with disrupting yourself is if it's actually a disruptive scenario, it's impossible, right? Like we yeah. and and there's a miss like government's time horizon ought regulators time horizon ought to be much longer ought to be much more holistic a, a holistic view ought to be acknowledging there are companies that haven't yet been formed technologies that haven't yet been created entrepreneurs that haven't yet been discovered that need to be enabled and unleashed and the natural cost of that will be today's companies will be today's profits but the payoff from a systematic societal perspective, is growing the pie. Instead, everyone is focused on local maxima, whether it's through buying people off or just the natural inclination on short-termism, and there's no one thinking about the long-term. And the people who, who are trying to push the long-term are preaching to the wrong people. You know, I think we might disagree less than you would think. I think from a – I mean, managers have a – Managers have a responsibility to look after shareholder value, and if there's a if there's a way of um, if there's a way of managing the company and setting the priorities of an organization such that you're more likely to maximize shareholder value in a system which is properly functioning, i.e., productive entrepreneurship, I think they they absolutely should do this. And there is a fantastic Steve Jobs quote that kind of drives at what Christensen was getting at when he came he came back to Apple and he was asked like, why had Apple fallen? Like, why was it doing well when you were there and then fallen by the wayside and now? C- come back. And I I love this quote. It's like, my passion has been to build an enduring company where people were motivated to make great products. The products, not the profit, were the motivation. Scully flipped these priorities to where the goal was to make money. It's a subtle difference, but it ends up meaning everything. Just to jump in, I mean, you have the same thing with Bezos in his letter this week. Like for For Amazon, it's the focus on the customer, which, but the general principle is the same, is that the profit is an outcome and and he yes. was warning against managing against proxies, of which profit is a proxy. Yes, yes. Um, and it's this notion that if you maximize for the proxy as opposed to the cause of the proxy, that you end up in trouble. Now, I think what Christensen's work is great for in terms of managers is is helping them understand that the the best that they can hope for is to focus on the right thing. And you're right, when true disruption comes along, when something comes along that cannibalizes your existing product base and its margins are worse than what you experience right now, for a whole bunch of reasons, 
reasons, it's really hard to pursue that. Not, not just and that, you, know you arguably shouldn't pursue it, right? Yeah, I, right, I, I, right. I, I, I've gotten this in debate with lots of people where I, I think I would actually prefer if most companies, you know, companies are always searching for their second hit and they waste mm. billions of dollars. Like the amount of money that Microsoft spends on innovation and R&D, particularly back in like the, the late 90s in the 2000s, was like competing with like VC money, right? But all mm. that money is basically flushed down the toilet because it wasn't in a proper environment where the incentives and the risks and rewards were properly calibrated. Whereas VC money is so productive because the the incentive structure is so much better. I would like how much better would the world be? I mean, it's a debate worth having, I think, if Microsoft mm. had taken all that money that they quote, spent on quote-unquote innovation and had just returned it to shareholders the entire time, and shareholders could have reinvested that in VC or whatever, whatever the companies might be. If I could design, uh, you know, if I, everyone, if I was, you know, dictator of the world, which, by the way, would be a terrible idea, which we can get to for a moment. <laughs> no, not because I'd be a bad dictator, but because no one, <laughs> no one person, nice. no, no. This is you, centrally central planning is a terrible idea because no mm. one person can imagine all the possible things that can be done. And this, I, 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 I said this for you at podcast ago, but it's worth saying again. There's this not cliche. There's this um, caricature of sort of free market advocates that oh, the private sector is better than government. No. The belief of those of us that believe in capitalism and market based outcomes is that no one is special. No one is good enough to figure everything out. And what we want is a system where all the bad ideas will fail quickly. The problem yeah. is when you have a, a, the government or a, or a company that has too much market power and, or has a monopoly for whatever the reason might be, a, a health reason or not, the problem is that that company it, – it's like Microsoft where they spend money on quote-unquote innovation – it's defined both by a narrow number of people with a narrow perspective who don't have proper incentives and who are limited by a strategy tax of the company they work for. And is Microsoft going to really discover all the innovation there is to, to discover? Not only is the answer no, they're actually far less likely than someone else with that same money. What is far better is to have lots of people spending that money, experimenting, let 98% of them fail – and let the 2% figure something out that no one would have ever thought of otherwise. And, and, and this is the goal. This is why competition is critical. This is why I get so frustrated at people blaming situations on capitalism that are actually situations where there's like an absence of capitalism. There's no competition. It's monopoly or, or oligopoly. And, and people are like, oh, yeah, capitalism, late-stage capitalism. Give me a break. Ugh. Yeah, well, but I, I think this is the point that I was trying to drive at with the article, which is the objective function somewhere along the line, and it it kind of makes sense when you think about uh, when you think about when Moss identified it started to happen. It started to happen in the Great Depression when when uh, you know the, the, the economics and profitability and all these things were down, and people were so focused on getting that back up that somehow. The, what was most important in, in American society started to flip. It started to flip towards the proxy as opposed to the thing, the thing that causes what you want. And that, that part of the reason that we're in the predicament we're in today is because this has gone on for so long. And you've, uh, America's managed to ride on the back of all the hard work and setting the rules of the game 
so well for so long, and there's been a culture of people um, c- celebrating people, productive entrepreneurs. Like the the Steve Jobses of the world are held up as like these are these are folks that you want to be like. But slow, slowly but surely, like those that is starting to be eroded, and uh, instead you're getting you're getting management by proxy, people focusing on the 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 dependent rather than the independent variable. They're focusing on the 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 profit as opposed to the competition that causes the profit, and that this is the reason that the states is in the predicament that it's in right now, and it's gonna it's really hard to reverse. I don't know that there's there are necessarily really easy ways of fixing it. Yeah, there's another really interesting article written last fall um, by by Matt Stoller in The Atlantic who argues uh, – it makes a similar argument to you, but he's more focused on the sort of late 70s. Uh, and he argues that, that liberals and Democratic Party stopped being fervently sort of anti-monopoly and anti – Anti big company, which I, mm. I I think it's an interesting argument, but I think it's similar to it's similar to yours, and the you know the the thing with competition is it is injurious in the short term, right? Like if big companies have to compete, the, the nature of competition is that if you have an undifferentiated product or you don't have a cost advantage, your profit is going to go to zero. That's that's the entire way it works. And so mm. the goal is to build sort of, sort of different differentiation there. But what happens when it goes to zero? Well, there's tremendous consumer surplus that's generated, which is great. Uh, but then two, the that money is – if companies can't compete, that money becomes freed up to do other things, to pursue other opportunities. And I, I'm definitely coming around to the idea that I mean, you call it democracy, I'll call it competition, but I think we're kind of mm. on the same page that there is yeah. a a lack of it. There is a there's too many big companies, and there the regulatory and, and this is why I think the distinction between regulations is important. Right? There is regulation like antitrust regulation, and then there's like, for lack of a better term, like keep you safe regulation. <laughs> like, I, I, mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that generously in that like, there's lots of regulations that actually limit competition but are still important because they keep you safe, right? If you have a factory and you have to follow like, certain guidelines so your workers don't get their arms cut off, like that, that's mm-hmm. a good thing. I'm not saying that's not a good thing. But I'm just noting that if you have to satisfy regulations, it's harder to build a competing factory, right? Because you also have to satisfy these regulations as opposed to like, you know, when people get their arms cut off. Again, that's a good thing. I'm I'm not saying I'm not saying it's not a bad thing. I'm just this is where the sort of striking the balance comes in, where there are lots of other regulations that are that are much more. The benefits are much less than saving one's arms, <laughs> for example, but they have the same sort of competition limiting effect, and that's something that that you know we are both. Cons- concern about I, like i just looped yeah. you in on the arm cutting i i'm i'm yes i am no i'll i'll join you here i i um, <laughs> well, just, I, just i'd say- like my arms and i'm <laughs> i'm confident that you're not saying that we should remove regulation that that makes people less less safe but to step back i i think this is one element where and i i don't know the reality of the situation will match the rhetoric but the rhetoric of trump around reducing regulation was actually something that i agreed with because i let, let me give you a, a simple example. I walked into a doctor's office, uh, UCSF, recently, and they had 
a hundred flyers up on the wall. It was crazy. All the information, like where you can park, if you wanted water, there were tests going on, like all these different rules. And if you look at each one of those individual pieces of information, it absolutely made sense for them to put that up there. But the net effect of the system was so overwhelming around all the rules and things that I was meant to do and possibilities that it, 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 it was almost paralyzing. And there is some equivalent that happens inside of an economy where you can look at individual pieces of regulation and say, these absolutely make sense. Yes. But what, what tends to happen is you lose sight of the forest for all the trees and you get this overwhelming, oh my gosh, like, how am I supposed to comply with all of this? Forget it. I'm not even going to bother when, when folks don't step back and take a look at the big picture and the impact that all these individual pieces are having on an entrepreneurial ecosystem. I think that's what you're trying to drive Right. At. But the frustration is, what does the anti-regulatory stance actually end up entailing. It actually starts attacking the good kind of regulation. The good kind of regulation is like antitrust regulation that preserves competition. That is competition preserving Mm -hmm. as opposed to competition limiting. And I think, you know, like I said, I think the the two sort of rhetorical failings in American politics, and I think they have been purposeful to some extent, is one is the conflation of these two types of regulation where being anti-regulation, the anecdotes that are told are like hairdresser limitations, and the actual mm-hmm. policies that are pursued are like limiting antitrust. It, it, mm-hmm. They're actually the exact opposite focus and policy outcomes. And the other one is this idea of folks that are ardently anti-competition cloaking themselves in capitalism and freedom, and the alternative is socialism. And the reality is, if you they are anti-capitalist. They are more anti-capitalist than just about anyone else. And there's a rhetoric battle to be fought for competition, for for competition. Like I am pro-competition in my understanding of what capitalism means. That is why I am pro-capitalist. And and you know it, it, it's it's the other thing is it sounds simple. It sounds something that's easy to say, but. You end up with a lot of people who are anti, quote unquote, anti capitalists. They're also very, you know, like pro labor or pro regulation. Again, situations where it is very easy to describe the human benefit and the broader benefit. And I think the the labor movement has been very important in workers' rights and things like that. But there's a balance, there's a balance with everything. There's also a limitation of risk and a limitation of reward, and that has its own payoffs. It just broadly speaking, the answer is not an extreme anywhere. It has to be somewhere, somewhere yeah. in the middle. Yeah, I I, th- I think you're spot on. I think what uh, the anti-capitalism folks, I, you know, more often than not, I think what they're reacting to is poor management of capitalism as opposed to capitalism itself. Like you want to go and live under a centrally planned economy or uh, the other end of the extreme, uh, like complete libertarianism with no rules at all, be my guest, but you're not going to have much fun. But I think what we've driven at here is this objective function around whether it's competition or democracy. Well, I think you're you're being a little generous. I think they're like it's very easy to say that no one should lose their job or that wages should be higher. And in a narrow sense, those things may be true. But you have to. There has to be a systematic approach where there has to be failure has to be allowed. There has to be 
motivations in both directions. That's important. Now, should there be a, a safety net? Should there be an acknowledgement that that systematic changes happen such that entire industries become obsolete in jobs? Absolutely. And we have advocated that again and again and again. I think we're well in tune with that happening. But there has to be an acknowledgement whether you're advocating that or the opposite of the trade-offs you are making when you engage in that advocacy. This uh, You're spot on. And this is my frustration with the way that it has been managed so far is that the the wonderful thing about optimizing for this competition for growing the growing the pie in a productive way is that there are more gains that end up that that are created which enable you to support the people that are adversely affected so this is the reason like if you do this right you can afford to put in place a decent social safety net so it's people don't feel like their livelihoods are going to get that completely torn apart when one of these companies fails and that should be the aim like the the value of economic growth when you step back, like the value of it is what it enables, the positive impact that enables on society. But somehow the focus on like the proxy of profit has become the motive and anything that stands in the way of that, which is like, oh gosh, you're going to raise taxes to pay for the social security net. Somehow it's got flipped and people are focusing on the wrong thing. And that's where the reaction to capitalism well, is I, coming I think, from. But both sides are doing the same thing. Both sides are arguing about how to split up the pie. The companies are cloaking it in, we want to grow the pie, but actually they're trying to split up the pie more in their favor. And the people opposing them are saying, we want to split up the pie more, more, more in our direction. And neither side, arguably, are actually invested in, in, growing, in growing the pie. Yeah, I, I mean that's that is that is a fair assessment. And again, this is where, and this is why I think there needs to be a distinction. This, this there there ought to be a distinction between business and politics. It's the role of the politicians to be invested in the long term st- overall structure of the economy, not on the short term like profit generation of, of individual companies. It's like, you know, like the App Store, for example, right? People there's always these debates around making money in the app store. And and it's like, well, to what extent are app developers just bad business people? And to what extent is Apple responsible? Well it's both. And an app developer is responsible for his or her individual app and how it monetizes, but they operate in the overall structure of an economy where Apple defines the rules. And so when we criticize yeah. Apple for for not having a the proper structure so that people so that people can make money over the long run, that's not excusing bad apps. If you make a crappy app that no one wants, that's your own damn problem, right? Or if you have if you build like an app that there's a million competitors and you try to charge for it and everyone else is free, guess what? You're going to fail. And you would fail even if Apple had good rule set up because you're running a bad business. Like, and, and that's good. You should fail. It, again, not, I'm not celebrating failure, but there, there should be a drive. Like, how should, how should you succeed in the App Store? You should succeed by building a kind of app that no one has ever built before that is unique and hard to replicate. And 
then Apple should have a structure so that you can make money not just initially but over time from your best customers and you're invested to make it better and better and to increase your lead to take advantage of that head start. What's so perverse about the App Store is why is it so easy to copy? Because there's no incentive to improve. You build a product and then why would you improve the product because all that's going to happen, you can't charge money from your customers again. You got your money from them once. Right, and so it actually exacerbates the competition problem. Like in most technology marketplaces, Adobe Photoshop comes along in 1992, and they're still winning. Why? Because they've been improving it and building on the code base, and they have this massive head start that they've taken advantage of. And but how can they justify doing that? Because they've been charging the exact same people every year or every few years for literally decades. No, but the parallel is perfect. Like the, the if you think about if you think about uh, fostering an ecosystem in which people can be productive, and whether you do a good job of of that or not, like thinking about an app store is like the perfect little microcosm for what we've been describing here. And when you get frustrated with when we've been frustrated with the way that Apple has treated the iPad apps, because like the very nature of the apps need to be different, therefore the rules of the game need to be different. It is the same thing inside of an economy. Like you need to have a, you need to have a sense of uh, like it, it and it, what you focus on and what the objective function is and, and the government's role in fostering that ecosystem such that entrepreneurialism is productive. Like the parallel is perfect. And the, the point is no one wants Apple to be picking and choosing winners in the app store. Right. And we want there to be, the willingness to invest in apps that have never been no one ever thought of. And this is the criticism I always had about why the iPad failed. And we talked a little bit about this last week is the iPad was this tremendous device that offered the potential to do things that could not be done on any other computing device that couldn't be done with a mouse and keyboard. But to, to realize that you have to foster innovation. You have to give people a, you have to give people the willingness to experiment and to fail, but why would they take the chance of investing tons of money and failing? Because there's the opportunity to make a whole bunch of money on the back end. Apple's limitation of the ability to make money on the back end is the exact sort of cutting off the reward function that we're talking about. It's a great example. There, where are all these amazing innovative apps that no one could think of? They're non-existent. The best apps we have are made by Apple. The iPad is basically centrally planning. Mm. It's a great example of it, where the app situation is is much poorer than it might have been otherwise, much poorer than the Mac. Look at the Mac having all all kinds of interesting, innovative apps, even though – why? Because you can make money. We successfully managed to take a conversation about uh, society and economics and Tied to uh, the App Store. bring it back to Apple. That's right. <laughs> it was bound to happen. There, there's, I think your, your, your point in this article about what sort of entrepreneurship do we reward, I, I think a lot of it really gets back to this risk-reward function. Like you have the healthier – a healthier economy is one in which the actors in that economy – properly feel and realize the risk and reward of their actions. And that goes in both directions. They need to get the return if they succeed, and they need to feel the pain if they fail. And if when you start messing with either of those, and again, sometimes there are valid reasons to, me- to mess with them. It is valid to tax people. It is. 
even though you are messing with the return function. Because why? Because it's also valid to have a social safety net. You know, it's valid to, to, to like, we're, we're humans at the end of the day. We're not automatons or computers, you know, in some Ayn Rand fantasy. Like, there's a reality, and that's why there's a balance. There's a balance to strike. But any, if your position does not countenance the places where what you're advocating for, the downsides of it, it's not what I'm interested in hearing because all these things have consequences. They all go in both directions. And, Yeah. This would be the point that you would say, "Oh gosh, we've gone really long, and we should yeah, that, probably that's wrap an up. Under us. That, 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 that's a <laughs> the statement. Well, uh, we should uh, we should also thank Mailchimp for sponsoring us this week's episode of Exponent, and uh, I will talk to you next week. Oh, right, I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> See you, mate. Bye. You were meant to say, mate. Oh shoot. <laughs> See you later, mate. <laughs> yeah. ah there we go it completely flipped around i'll talk to you next week see ya bye